The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From the last section of Psalm 119. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord. And your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. Listen to this. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. For I do not forget your commandments. Let's pray. God, the psalmist cries out to you, asking you to hear his plea, to hear his cry. says that he longs for your salvation and then acknowledges that he is like a lost sheep and asks you to seek him. Lord, we are like lost sheep. Most of us here, Lord, we are, are your people. And so in some great and glorious sense, we can say we were like sheep gone astray. And you did seek us out. And you did bring us back. And we praise you for that. But today, this morning, Lord, we want to say we are like lost sheep even now. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I feel it for me and I feel it for us. If we are honest before you, we say, you're your sheep prone to wander, prone to leave the Lord we love. Would you come and get us? Seek us, please. Come and get us. Hunt us down. Chase us over hill and dale. Find us. Bring us back. Fasten us to You, Lord, please. We have a text before us this morning that shows You doing just that with Your people. The people who have wandered and like sheep have gone everywhere and You graphically deliver them into that mess, pointing the way out, pointing the way towards the shepherd. Thank you for doing that, Lord, for showing us this ancient text that reveals our status and reveals your seeking. So would you please open this word to us, open it to us, bring the shepherd to our minds, to our hearts this morning and fix us, redeem us, Lord. Redeem us at, at the root, at the place where, where the problem is, in, in allegiance, in, in listening, in obedience, in hearing, in, in who we think is in charge, who we look to, 
whose voice we hearken to, whose commands we, we heed. Lord, fix us at that level and then bring relief and joy and peace and rest. Sheep content under a shepherd, found and led to still water. Lord, do that work among us this morning and, and use this passage, this sad passage, use it to point the way towards yourself, towards light and hope. Make, make the word clear this morning, Lord. Remove sin off of our hearts, out of our minds. Forgive us. Lord, I am, I am so keenly aware of my own fallings, my own sin. We are sinful people. But you love us still, and I pray that you would right now set aside in our minds, you would speak to individuals here, that you would, you would draw out repentance, and you would set aside sin and sin barriers. You would have your way with us. Conform us to your image and do us that good right now, please. Spirit, open up the word. Give clarity to my words. And grow your church. That's what we pray for. For the sake of Christ, we pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 31, which is the final chapter in the book of 1 Samuel. And of course, it's not the end of the story. 2 Samuel originally was a part of the same work. 1 and 2 Samuel were the single book of Samuel, but we have divided them for convenience sake. But we didn't divide them, the church didn't divide them haphazardly. It's been divided at this point because this is a climax in the story. This is, this is a pinnacle. This chapter and last chapter, these two battles here that are that are set so that they appear back to back and so they appear simultaneous and they probably were actually fought on the same day. It's not quite clear, it it might not be the case, but they're at least presented to us that way and probably happened on the same day, although they were 60, 70 miles apart from each other. So there's a a setting here at at this pinnacle here, a battle with David and a battle with Saul. And we see two different people and two radically different outcomes. Last week you looked at David and his battle. He, he and his men were sent home, you'll recall, from the Philistine camp. They'd been drafted to go march against Israel, but they were sent home, which must have been a great relief to them. And so they marched 60 miles back to Ziklag, their home, at which point relief turned into agony. All of their families, every last one of them, every Woman, every son, every daughter had been taken captive to be sold as slaves. Gone. To who knows where. And the men, including David, it says, wept. They cried out. They they wailed in great sorrow until they had no more strength to weep and wail. Crushed. But God had a plan in that. As he always does, he has a plan in everything. And while God had intended that the wives and children be taken, he also intended to deliver them, to rescue them, every single one of them. Every person, all of the loot, he brought it all back, every last bit of it. In an amazing display of his grace, 
and a clear display of his agent of grace because he did it in David, 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 David. You'll recall his name is all over that chapter. So it's clearly showing the, the gracious, delivering, merciful, saving, redeeming, recovering nature of God in David. That's the point. God redeems one place in David. And he redeems perfectly, completely. The only place to find rescuing grace in our time of need is in David. So our attention is turned towards him. That's the message of chapter 30, which is aptly communicated right before the events of chapter 31, which are the other side of the coin. That deliverance in David is a needed message because a whole bunch of this book is pointing us towards this last chapter, which is a tragic chapter. Everything is about to fall. One of the words emphasized. Everything is about to come down and come undone. So we're going to read chapter 31 and we'll see first sadness and sorrow and the reason behind that which perhaps will be convicting but then we'll see in the larger picture the purpose of it which should be hope inspiring. Should be hope inspiring. Let me read chapter 31, and then I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand the details. And then I'll make two observations. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it, And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. 
And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Chapter 31. The text begins with the battle already in progress, as the NAS puts it. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. It further ties these two battles together because we join it already in progress. We switch over from the other battle and come to this one. And things aren't going well. Verse 1 says, The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa which is in the north-central part of Israel. And there we have two words that summarize this chapter well. Fled and fell. Repeated throughout. The men of Israel fled. Here it's talking about soldiers. Down in verse 7, it says the men of Israel on the other side of the valley, talking about civilians there, the people of Israel, who see that the men of Israel, soldiers again, had fled. Then they fled too. So we have three times in this chapter the men of Israel fleeing, fleeing, fleeing. They abandoned their cities and they fled. Initially, the cities and and the towns on the other side of the valley, I could see the battlefield, but news spread all throughout north-central Israel, even across the Jordan River. And all the population is displaced and they run. They see the results of the battle. They realize the Philistines are going to be in charge and they vacate the premises. Displaced, refugees, homeless. They flee to the hills, they cross the river, they run. And it says the Philistines came and lived in those cities. This is a a reverse conquest. The Philistines now come to live in cities they did not build and enjoy orchards and fields they did not plant. Everything's coming undone. Obviously, it would have taken a little bit of time for that to happen and for the civilian Philistines to come and occupy these cities, but that's what happened. And then we come back, verse 8. The next day... Philistines came, and they found the Israelites who had not fled, they found those who had fallen. They come to strip the dead. Armies in that day would pass back over the battlefield and would take absolutely everything that was of value. So things were probably winding down near nightfall, and they come back the next day to to gather up all the loot from the battlefield, and they find, what do you know, the king and his sons fallen. That word's used four times in the passage and along with struck down from verse 2 as well as the images of Saul beheaded and Saul and his sons then hung up to be eaten by birds. You get, you get another image. You get people fleeing and running and displaced the population in chaos and then you get down. Fallen, 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 struck down humiliated, shamed. This is, the, this is the nation, its head and everybody below it, brought to lowliness and humiliated. The battle went against them just as God said it would back in chapter 28. And Saul is dead. He, he, he'd been wounded, it says. He asked his armor bearer to thrust him through, but the armor bearer recognizing this is still the anointed of the Lord, wouldn't do it. So Saul killed himself. And the armor bearer killed himself, and then all of his sons being dead, at least the three that were there, they're dead. The the bodyguard, they all die. It's over. And the Philistines find it, and they say, good news. Verse 9. 
good news and they proclaim it to all of their people in all of their cities in all of their temples and they take Saul's head and Saul's armor important because you recall from previous times discussing battles battles between people in that day were also viewed as battles between gods and so if we have won and if we have won so completely as to find the other God's chosen leader dead on the field. We've won a great victory. So we will take his head and his armor to show his head has fallen and his shield, his armor has failed him. Who is that armor, that shield? Particularly that shield that failed him is God, his God. And we put that in the temple of our God to show our God's triumph. Good news. Or shame and humiliation if you're Israelites. They take his body, they hang it on, on the wall of the city, which sets us up for a fitting and poignant conclusion. The city of Beth Shan, where, where the bodies are hung up 10 miles away, across the other side of the River Jordan, is the city of Jabesh Gilead. Remember Jabesh Gilead? It's come up before in this book back in chapter 11. It's been 40 years since then. Not 40 years since I preached it, 40 years since this happened. <laughs> Not that old, and this hasn't been that long. It's been 40 years since the events at Jabesh Gilead. But these men come from this city, they, they risk their lives, march all night, 10 miles one way, because they remember something. They remember when Saul was a newly anointed, humble king. He was not always the king of chapter 22, sitting beneath the tamarisk tree, sword in hand, looking for those who were rivaling his kingdom and about to slaughter all the priests. Last time we met him under a tree. He wasn't always that king. There was a time back in chapter 11 when he didn't care mostly for his own rights and mostly for his own kingdom and mostly for his own authority to rule, but he cared about the kingdom of God and God's word. And back in chapter 11, with the Spirit of the Lord resting on him and anointed, he had rallied the people in the fear of the Lord to deliver God's people. And they remember that. And with weeping, they go get him. They bring him back. And they they protect his body from being further desecrated by burning it. And they bury it under a tree. And they fast for seven days. The king is dead, fallen, and all Israel is fleeing. And this is good news. This is good news. Let me try to explain how this is good news by making two observations here. First one deals with the the tragedy and the sorrow of this and why. And the second one moves to the good news part. I make two observations. Here's the first one. Clear from this passage. God can be trusted to bring to an end all rival kingdoms. God can be trusted to bring to an end all rival kingdoms. That's what we're seeing happen in this chapter. The the dominant theme, obviously, is, is fallen and fleeing. 
Everything has come undone here. The men of Israel, and particularly the house of Saul, his sons, they are all fallen, struck down. The kingdom is over. It's physically destroyed. The king and the next three heirs are all dead. Everybody's scattered. The, the, the seams of the nation have been ripped apart. Humiliation and destruction, crushing defeat. That, that's, that's what's happened. And why has it come about? Well, if you just read this chapter, we don't know. If we only read here, we might just say, well, perhaps it was because they, you know, they militarily didn't have you know, the chariots they needed or their archers weren't as good. But if we've read the rest of the book, we know exactly why this happened. God has told us why this happened. Back in chapter 28, he told Saul about the looming defeat. This is God's judgment on Saul for disobedience. Placing himself in authority over God, Saul sees himself as ruler, as king. Sees his own kingdom as supreme, and God strikes him down just like he said he would. And that's all a repeat of a constant message in this book. It's, it's particularly, here at the end, it particularly mirrors the first battle of the book, back in chapter 4. The first time the Philistines gathered at Aphek. Same place they gathered. And again in that place, there was a ruler over Israel with sons who were haughty and thought themselves superior to God. Thought that they would rule according to their own means. And they went out to battle and God struck them down. And the Philistines triumphed and took trophies from the field and put it in the temples of their gods and proclaimed victory and rejoicing throughout the land. The very same thing. The, the echoes at the beginning and the end are unavoidable. This is a repeat. God is striking the same note. Every rival kingdom, whether it be a priest and his wicked sons who think, thus says the Lord, I know better. Or be a king who says, thus says the Lord, ah, I know better. Tragedy awaits. And eventually inevitably comes to every rival kingdom. The one who seeks his own kingdom, whoever that would be, because God will not share his glory with another. It is fundamental. He is king. There is no other. And He will not allow there to be a rival who stands challenging that truth. This is rightly God's place. He is so clear on this and so strongly defends His right to be honored, His right to be heard and obeyed. He alone is the one who sits enthroned over all of the heavens, who speaks and it should be. And He makes sure that it is. He tears down all rival kingdoms. And He can be trusted for that. Which should be greatly encouraging to us. We who suffer like Hannah... I talked about this last week. Bring it up again here because the Hannahs of the nation 
the downcast and the lowly. You recall how she prayed in chapter 2 as she looked at ones still alive, Eli and sons, over with a heavy hand on the nation, ruling unrighteously and unjustly. She looked at that from the bottom and said, Oh God, when would you, when will you bring a time? Please bring a time when those who are lowly in the dust will be lifted up and the high, haughty and mighty will be torn down. Oh God, do that. He does. He does. We, we live in a world, you know, you bump into it all of the time. We live in a world that is increasingly, and in some parts of the world, entirely hostile to the God of the Bible. Some places it is entirely hostile, violently so. Now it is just increasingly so, and, and it meets you in places that are uncomfortable, not dangerous yet, but uncomfortable. Sometimes embarrassing, sometimes humiliating, sometimes silencing. Know this. He can be trusted to write all of that. He is God, there is no other. He writes it all. He tears down every rival kingdom in his time and in his way. David had to wait for this for how long? 10, 15 years? Hannah prayed chapter 2 decades, decades ago. We can't know the time or the place or the ways in which he writes all the wrongs, in which he tumbles all of the high and haughty kingdoms, but he does. He can be trusted with that. So I want to reiterate that point. I made it a little bit last week and I repeat it now. God can be trusted to keep his word to topple all rival kingdoms. All of the souls of the world who stand over us and threaten us will come down. That's true. And it should be a comfort, should be a relief to us. But there's something else we need to consider here. Something that is a bit more sobering. Because I say the Lord can be trusted to bring to an end all rival kingdoms. And I am certainly including Saul's and Eli's mighty authorities, those in power. But it's the men of Israel who flee, flee, flee. It's the men of Israel who fall. The problem started with the people who wanted a king. Do you remember? Chapter 8 before Saul even thought the idea, the people said, we are done submitting to the Lord. We are done trusting the Lord in what is unseen. Give us a king like all the nations have. Give us a king to go fight our battles for us. Give us a king who will be a mighty leader. It was the people. The people themselves. Before there was a Saul, there were Saul's. Thousands of them. 
So that reminds us of something that we need to, to consider very carefully. We are accustomed, perhaps, to looking out there at the kingdoms and saying, thank God what a relief it is that He will tear down that rival kingdom. And I need to make you aware of this. The rival kingdom lives here. Do you know that? The first and most dangerous rival kingdom is very personal. It's in here. I do not want to diminish the threat and the pain from from the kingdoms out there, but we must be realistic about something, men and women. I talk about a rival kingdom and it sounds grand. Let's make it very simple. When God spoke to Saul in chapter 28, look at verse 18 of chapter 28. What was the problem? Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out His fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this to you this day. Speaking about what we're reading. I'm using language to kind of parallel some of the themes here, rival kingdom. When God uses language to describe it, He just says, you disobeyed. That's rival kingdom. heard the voice and said, "Mm, no. I stopped for just a moment to consider. How many times today have I heard the voice and said, ah, no. I stopped considering it. It was uncomfortable. We are not strangers to disobedience, men and women. Yes, I want to be, I want to be really, really clear. And I want to be equally strong about saying that the God of heaven and earth looks on you, His people, assuming that you are a Christian. He looks on you, His people, graciously in love and is passionately in love with you. I don't mean that in love with in a romantic way, but loves you. Yes, I want to be really clear about that. And I also want to say, He is God Almighty enthroned over heaven and earth and will not share His glory with another and looks at disobedience and says, No! No! He looks to His people in love and in grace. Oh! in love and in grace and says holy 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 be holy for i am holy here is the word of the lord do it he does not speak one message or the other he does not say i love you and i care not a bit about obedience he does not say i am only about obedience and there is no love in it because you are disobedient with a grimace a growl No, both at the same time. We have to be really honest about this. We who are Christians, be really honest about this. If you're not a Christian, oh, please see this. 
Eternity hangs right here. If you're not a Christian, eternity hangs right here. In your disobedience, the wrath of God is coming. The only place to flee from the wrath of God against your disobedience is to the cross where He has provided the one hope of forgiveness. But Christians, graciously, kindly, in love, He tears down all rival kingdoms. He's against, he's against disobedience in his people. If you will pause for a moment and think about it, you might be able to stand only a moment of it. How many times yesterday did you hear the voice and say, Ah, no. Christian, God does not come at you with hand raised high or a strike. I think we think that sometimes. That's not true. That's not true. He struck his son for you for that. It's over. But like a parent, he does come to his people in disobedience to say, rival kingdom, no I will tear that down. I will not allow there to be three parents in the home here. He's resolute in opposing that. And sometimes that might bring a hand of discipline, chastening. There is a warning here at the end of this book that shows the path and the end of the path. It shows Sauline life at its end in the great and mighty king and in all the people who wanted him instead of the Lord. As the shoe is on the other foot now and the land is not gained but lost. So the point for all this, for Christians and for non-Christians alike, is to realize God's disposition towards rival kingdoms, He's against them. If He finds it in you, He's against it in you. So, give thought to it. Where are you commonly inclined to hear the voice of the Lord and say, "Mm, No. I know a better way. That step is you climbing onto the throne. And he's against that. How and when will he be, can he be trusted to bring down that kingdom? I, I don't know how and when, but he can be trusted to bring down that kingdom. You might give thought... That's a really broad question. Where, where, where do you find yourself inclined to climb onto the throne? It's really broad. So you might give thought to this. Where do you find yourself irritated, angry, frustrated, indignant? That's, that's the clue for me. 
what those emotions are telling me and what those emotions tell us in general is something I want just got crossed, thwarted. And I don't like that. That's what the anger, the frustration, the, the indignation says. Mm. Where you find anger and frustration, indignation, you probably find your kingdom. And God can be trusted to oppose it. To tear it down. And that is good news. Which is what brings me to the second point. Like a proclamation, I'll put it like this. Good news. God strikes down rival kingdoms to prepare the way for His own to come. Good news. God strikes down rival kingdoms to prepare the way for His own his own kingdom, the kingdom to come. Obviously, I'm taking that expression, good news, from verse 9, where it makes a lot of sense for the Philistines and not so much sense applied to the Israelites. How can this all be good news from their perspective? Well, carefully, I want to, I want to qualify that. I am not saying and do not mean to say that in and of themselves, the particulars of the passage are good. Death, homelessness, social chaos, all that, all that comes from that, I'm not saying that's good. And the circumstances that may surround his tearing down of kingdom in your life, I'm not saying those particular things in and of themselves are good. What I'm saying is good here is what God does with it. He providentially creates a path of tragedy as a road to renewal. This is not pointless tragedy. This didn't just happen. Nothing just happens. There's a point to it. There's a plan here. And it is not merely a tragedy of retribution. There, there is punishment here. There is the hand of God striking Saul. We have seen God's judgment hang over Saul for years and years and years now. He's been forecasting this day, and he finally has brought judgment on Saul and on all of the people. There is, there is a retribution here. But it is not merely that. It is redemptive tragedy. This is brought by God to advance His plan to bring in His kingdom to Israel and to all the earth. He's judging. He's striking down. But how in the world is He going to redeem? How's, how's He going to fix this mess? Or could I ask, how is He going to answer Hannah's prayer to lift up the lowly? Is He going to do it by eliminating the king altogether? Is He going to say... This is what you wanted. Here you go. That's what you get. Now we're done with the king thing. Let's move on back to the other plan that I had. No, that's not what he's doing. 
We come to 11, 11 to 13, we get the hint here. There was a time that the king thing worked. It worked very well in chapter 11. If you have that kind of king. You look at that place, you look at that place in, the, in the book, you have a king who is low and who is humble, who is concerned about God's kingdom and not his own standing, who is filled with and, and dependent on the power of the Spirit of God and leads the people in the fear of God to deliver the people of God. That worked. Where can we find a king like that? We, we see our need here. I think this is what's going on at the very end. At the, at the very end, it says they fasted for seven days. I think what's going on there is the people of Jabesh-Gilead with two things, a, a memory and a hope. There's a memory. The king at one point for us was marvelous. What now? They fast. Fasting is, is an expression of, of humility, of, of lowness. God-oriented lowness and humility. Even repentance. The other time Israel fasts in this book is when Samuel is calling into repentance just before God miraculously delivers them from a Philistine army on the field of battle. Approaching. They're fasting, and for seven days, when this is more than just mourning here, because when David and his guys, they hear about the defeat, they hear about the death of Jonathan and Saul, they are grieved by it. It says they weep, they tear their clothes, and they fast until evening, not seven days. The other time in this book that seven days of, of religious retreat happens is when Saul, commanded by Solomon, commanded by Samuel, Supposed to wait seven days for him to come and give him the word of the Lord as to what he should do. I think we have at the very end a note being struck of a memory of how the king worked and a humble question of what's next. And we, the reader, know, because we read the previous chapter, we know that while God is at this point highlighting and, and showing to the people of Israel their great need. He scatters them all across everywhere like sheep wandering without a shepherd. He breaks people, points out their, their weakness, their vulnerability, brings them to a point of humble repentance. That We know that over here he's pointing David, 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 David. In whom do I renew and recover and redeem and fix? David. What do we do? We are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What are we to do? So it's being done here at the end. He has, he has struck down a kingdom to create a, a blank, if you will. A spot that needs to be filled in. How and who? Created a sense of a need. And he's going to fill it with David. A king like Saul used to be, but better. A king who actually is a believer, who has a heart after God. 
who in the power of the Spirit will seek out God's Word, as we saw last chapter. Listen to it. Obey it. Go forward in faith and in in diligence. Fight to free the captives and be given great success by God. That's what he's doing in striking down Saul's rival kingdom, preparing the way for his chosen king to take the throne and rule. We look at that. See that going on here. And we have to realize, from that point on, What God has been committed to doing from this, really preceding this too, but from this moment in history on, He has been about taking David and enthroning him. Very actively, very particularly, He's he's going to do it in, in time and space and in history. And from then on, that's been God's agenda. To take an empty throne and set David on it. But where the throne's not empty, he has to clear it first. To clear it then is good news. To clear it and create a blank that needs to be filled in with whom, how, and to to clear it, to create a sense in us of need. Of an, of an awareness that that did not work. Here I am, w- without a shepherd, scattered and lost and hopeless and weak and vulnerable. To create that kind of need and that kind of an open and that kind of a space is, is a gracious and good thing for God to do. And He is relentless in doing it. He can be trusted, always trusted to take down rival kingdoms, not just to punish but so as to set David on the throne. And not the David who lived and died long ago, but the David who lived and died and rose and reigns. That David, on the throne in your heart, on the throne in this church's center. So everything that God does, every even tragic work that God does that clears out room and creates a blank and asks the question who and how and where and when to be answered with David. Everything that does that is good. Even if the thing itself is not good. It is a good work. It is a gracious gift. So I need to ask you very carefully but very clearly do you see the grace of God in your tragedies? Do you? So often, this is heartache. So often, it is amidst a death or relationship breaking or, or, a, or a crisis that just has no end. So often, it seems, in those places we are broken and scattered and we realize, we get in touch with, I am a sheep, I am wandering, oh God, seek me. We cry out in the words of Psalm 119. We, we, we don't ask that when we are fat, happy, and rich. We don't ask that. 
But we are much more inclined, sadly, in those moments to say, look at the great city that I have built with these hands of mine. Is God mercifully toppling your throne to unseat you for your great good? Look at the places where you get angry and frustrated and upset. Those are the places where you're feeling the push. We, we, we usually grab to hold on. Don't make him push harder. Get off. Climb down and surrender. Is he mercifully toppling your throne? I do not mean to trivialize the confusing and awkward and painful and crushing tragedies of life. But I ask you to consider for a moment how might the Lord be using that tragedy right there to put you in touch with harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Oh God, seek me. How might the Lord be using that hardship to break your pride? How might the Lord be pointing out disobedience in your life? Or foreshadowing for you what the great tragedy of final judgment looks like? Say that to you who are not trusting Christ. It is a merciful thing when God brings hardship to your life today, foreshadowing the great hardship at the end. Because he can be trusted to tear down every rival kingdom. He will tear down your kingdom. But he invites you, all of us, he invites all of us to to come and find a yoke. Indeed a yoke. You know what a yoke is? A yoke looks really heavy and really awkward and it it holds you. If you're an animal, it, it holds you. It doesn't let you wander off that way where you might want to go. It holds you. He invites you to come and take a yoke that is easy, he says, and a burden that is light. His yoke. He strikes at our rival kingdoms and he will not allow them to stand forever. But he does that now in this time with redemption in view. A redemption that first gets the throne sitter right. That first gets the kingdoms in order and then after that brings what our eyes are so often focused on, the rest and the peace, the hope and the joy. There is, there is no hope of talking of redemption as long as the throne thing's not right. The redemption is the dethroning of self and the enthroning of David, the great son of David. So he invites you 
Get off the throne. And find a king who is good. Who rightly rules. And will bring a kingdom into your life even now. In fullness one day. But will bring a kingdom into your life even now that is good and right. It's the kingdom that you actually want. He's the shepherd we need, the wise ruler we need, the beautiful Savior we long for. It is good news. However He acts to bring that King and that Kingdom to our lives. So let me pray that He'll do a good work in your life. Lord, we have a need. We are people in a world that has fallen with hearts that are fallen. And we have a need for You to intervene in our lives and order them. It it is not hard for us us who are Christians even, it is not hard for us to identify with that phrase, O wretched man that I am, who can rescue me from this body of death? We are indeed prone to wander. Even now as your people, prone to wander. We have a need. We are like sheep that have wandered off. And so I ask you, Lord, would you please seek us? Some here, Lord, perhaps need to be sought out and saved. Brought from death to life. But most of us here, Lord, we need You to seek us out and find us and draw us back into the center of the fold. Submission and obedience. Lord, we are Your people. And I pray that You would put on Your people now, the men and women and teenagers and kids here, that You would put on them, even as You put on them conviction. And even when they are in the midst of trouble and trial and seeing that has come from You, even amidst those hard things, Lord, would You put on Your people a very very clear sense of your smile towards them. It it is very hard for us, Lord. It's very hard for us to deal with love and discipline. It is very hard, ironically, very hard for us to to find what we need to help us with with the discipline part, your love. It's very hard for us to find that love because we fear and we cringe and we hide and we run or we resist because we think you're angry and don't like it. But God, do a work in us to free us from that misconception and the difficulty of seeing both your great smile and your disapproval of our rivaling you. Use your great smile on us to chase out the desire to rival you. 
God, this is hard. We need grace from you. Please do it. Wean us off of, of the suicidal tendency to, to build a kingdom against you. Wean us from that and show us the goodness of your kingdom. Give grace to us, your people, Lord. Give us hope. And Lord, remind us as we, we take cup and bread in hand now, remind us how you've proven your goodness to us at the cross. Proven your saving intention. Proven your desire to bless and not to curse. Speak that word to your people today, right now, too, as we take cup and bread in hand. Remind us of your love for us, of your goodness, of your grace. Thank you for being a God who is real, for a God who is almighty. For God who will have His kingdom come and His will done on earth as it is in heaven. So hallow Your name in our lives, Lord, I pray. In Christ's name I pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.